The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, Behold. the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Season two, punk rock versus the lizard people, the exile. Versus the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Mod Log 15. Heist. I seriously can't see anything, Emma whispered. The Syad Center was hidden within a wooded area of southern Vancouver along the Columbia River. Emma was right. The darkness was virtually impenetrable. Peering through a dense layer of greenery, we could see the facility glowing orange in the distance. It looked like a yuppie's mid-century condo, only bigger, as big as a hospital. How do we get in? Paul whispered. The entrances are all genetically coded to open for Emi, Isaiah said. So, just any alien can wander right in the front door? I asked. Every Emi commissioned for work on Earth undergoes rigorous training and psychological conditioning. We spent all our time securing ourselves against humans. An Emi trader is unprecedented. Until you came along, huh? Said Jade. Fucking A, Isaiah said quietly, his eyes on the facility. We'd managed to combine our shared inventory of necessities into four small backpacks that Isaiah assured us would more than likely survive their ride through an interstellar wormhole. In the end, this is what we packed. Seven different mixtapes, after it became abundantly clear we would never agree on anything. Three Walkmans in a boombox, Connor's leather jacket, Barrett's red vest, Paul's beanie, my denim coat, and three bras. Becky insisted on bringing two of her own despite being assured there existed a means of doing laundry on Gaina. A totally outdated issue of Video Gaming Illustrated, with E.T. on the cover, because Paul never got around to reading it, 
A paperback copy of Dune, because Dune is totally badass. VHS copies of Short Circuit, just in case. And Gremlins, for Christmas time. Two pillows, in case the pillows on Gaina suck. Three skateboards, and a single toothbrush. We realized later that we forgot to pack toothpaste. Crouched in the shrub some 100 yards from the facility, Barrett, Paul, and myself with the backpacks, a skateboard tucked beneath each of them, Jade said what was on everyone's mind. I'm sort of scared. Everyone nodded silently. Remember the plan, Isaiah said coolly. We just have to get what we came for, then get to the harbor. Everything is going to be fine. This is going to work. Maybe Connor should say a prayer. Paul suggested, his voice sincere. We all looked to Connor as if this sounded like as good an idea as any. With his gaze locked on the facility, Connor prayed. God is our dad, and he is very good. Make the world the way it should be. Provide for us the things we need. Forgive us for screwing up as we forgive other screw-ups. Keep us safe from the evil one. It was quiet for a moment. Amen, I said. Amen. Everyone echoed. Did you make that up? Paul asked Connor. No, Jesus did, Connor whispered. Wicked. Let's go, Isaiah told us. It's time. There was no turning back now. Once inside the facility, we were hit by an immediate sense of security. The place was as white and sterile as any hospital, lit up with fluorescent bulbs and as quiet as outer space, which, I'm told, is very quiet. The entrance opened into a bright white extended corridor. I felt vulnerable creeping in, but also somewhat comforted by the apparent isolation. Where is everyone? Emma whispered. I told you, I say a whispered back, limited personnel. The staff all live on site. They have to sleep sometime. Is everyone asleep? Becky asked. How should I know? Isaiah hissed, sounding nervous. Where are all the guards? Barrett said. Where's the security around this place? What security? 
Isaiah responded. Every single checkpoint is genetically responsive. Only Emi can move through the facility or humans with Emi chaperones. It's the damn honor system, said Paul. Yeah, Isaiah said, as the group approached the end of the corridor. Not working out so great for them. I came to a gradual stop behind Isaiah and took a moment to survey our surroundings. The architecture of the place was as minimalistic as possible. The halls, ceiling, and walls all a marbled white. The tall doors nearly invisible except for their thin seams as if cut into the wall itself. With no knobs or hinges, I had no idea how anyone got in or out of any of the rooms. Innumerable doors lined the hall with perfect spacing and symmetry, but it didn't matter. The plan was to follow Isaiah, who had warned us that the facility used no visual indicators of any kind to guide its inhabitants throughout its complicated infrastructure. Syed workers were all trained to memorize and navigate the labyrinth long before stepping foot on the premises. In the unlikely event that an intruder managed to find their way inside, they'd be hopelessly lost with no way to pass between checkpoints long before they managed to cause any trouble. We were all crouched in a line, leaning against the wall as Isaiah peered around the first corner. Behind me, the group looked like a worried conga line. Against our stark surroundings, everyone looked absurdly flashy. Becky with her pink and purple jacket, Emma's neon sweater, the deep red of Barrett's vest, even Connor stood out in his typical ratty black uniform. This way, Isaiah whispered, creeping around the corner. No one spoke as we followed Isaiah through the maze of identical corridors for what felt like an hour. After a while, I began to suspect Isaiah himself had lost his way but couldn't muster the courage to admit it. I was feeling pretty scared, and the idea that we might abandon the mission suddenly seemed like a good one, a notion I was almost certain the rest of the group would readily affirm. Just as I was about to suggest as much, we came to a stop in front of a random door, or a door-like shape cut into the wall, indistinguishable from the dozens we had passed on our way. Fanning his three long fingers and an equally long opposable thumb, Isaiah pressed his palm into the unmarked center of the door. A gentle chime resonated from the door's surface as a green panel illuminated beneath Isaiah's hand. The rectangular space that seemed to indicate a door in the wall moved silently away from Isaiah's outstretched arm, then quickly disappeared to the right, as if on a track we couldn't see. Beyond the door was thick darkness. Before anyone could mention it, Another relaxing chime sounded as the room was flooded with white light. Inside was an empty chamber of white except for a small island situated in the center of the room, made from the same material as everything around it. Following behind Isaiah, the seven of us wandered slowly into the open room, where Isaiah approached the island, his hand outstretched. The door closed behind us, Becky whispered. I looked behind us and observed that she was right. Everything up until now had felt insanely dangerous. Somehow the closed door and the privacy of the room provided a sense of safety. Isaiah set about punching in a series of entry codes by tapping what looked to us like arbitrary points on the island's surface, each of them chiming and responded with a quick blink of green light. There was another chime, some synthetic-sounding words spoken in Emi. Then the entire surface of the island became transparent, as if made from glass. Inside, what looked like an ancient scroll was suspended in midair. Is that? I whispered. Yep, Isaiah answered quietly. Eschatomech. The final heresy, said Jade. Oh, crap, 
said Emma, shielding her eyes as if the scroll were playing a horror movie. We shouldn't read it, right? You can't read it, dork, I reminded her, smiling. Unless you know how to read Emmy and didn't tell us. Emma squinted at me. Maybe I do, buster. As the group cautiously approached the scroll, I moved silently away from them to the control panel Isaiah had used to open the island chamber. The interface lit up on the island's clear surface, and I discovered the interactive keyboard still visible. The keys, however, were all marked with unreadable Emi glyphs. I touched one of them, and the series of keys immediately reoriented themselves into the keyboard format with which I was accustomed, the glyphs becoming the letters of the English alphabet. Quickly, I began typing a name I'd read hundreds of times in my dad's journal. I looked around nervously. The others were still scheming a few feet away, my deviation from the group unnoticed. My search inquiry produced a series of archived documents, the first of which I was able to quickly forward to my own NARS account by following a series of user-friendly command prompts. I then stepped casually to the other side of the island to rejoin the group. No one had seemed to notice. Isaiah went on staring at the scroll in silence. Dude, Connor whispered to Isaiah, what are you doing? Get it out. That's the plan, right? Also, Becky interrupted, do we need to keep whispering? They've changed something, Isaiah observed, pointing to some inscriptions frosted on the glass-like surface of the island housing the scroll. I don't get it. Can you get it out or not? Paul asked impatiently. It says something about... Isaiah squinted at the text as if it must be mistaken. Something about a prisoner? That's not good news, Barrett said. They're going to take us prisoner? Becky asked urgently. No, you dweeb, Barrett answered. You think they wrote about us before we got here? Oh, like you know, Becky said, rolling her eyes. The Syed doesn't normally take or keep prisoners. Isaiah told us. It doesn't make any sense. He set about punching in a new set of commands slowly, as if reading them from the strange inscription he had discovered. When what must have been the final key to whatever combination Isaiah was entering was pressed, one entire wall of the square room chimed, glowed momentarily green, then faded from opaque to clear in an instant, just as the island had done. Beyond the wall was a second rectangular room, the area was made up like small living quarters. There was a sink, a toilet, some stacks of papers and pens, and a small mattress where a thin black man with a white beard sat. Startled by what must have been an unexpected visit, the man turned toward us and rose slowly from the bed. He was dressed in what must have been a Syed uniform, something like white hospital scrubs, and both his beard and what was left of the hair on his mostly bald head were cut neatly short. He didn't look much like a prisoner. The seven of us went rigid, but Isaiah seemed more confused than worried. Who are you? He asked plainly. Are you a prisoner here? Then the man seemed to take note of our posse. He looked suddenly apprehensive. Did you kids wander away from the tour? You shouldn't be in here. You need to leave. He kept looking from Isaiah to the rest of us as if he couldn't make sense of our partnership and who was here for what. Tour? Isaiah asked, cocking his head. What tour? Are you being kept here against your will? Then the man seemed to realize that the island in our room had been opened, the scroll visible inside. No, he said, clearly panicked. I told you, I can't help with that damn text. You're wasting your time. 
He seems upset, Jade said, still whispering. I say I looked to the scroll, then to the man, then back to the scroll again until I tapped him impatiently. What are we doing, man? I asked. Are we getting this thing or not? I say I looked into the small chamber as if something had just clicked. We can get you out of here, he said. You can help us. Without waiting for a reply, I say a punched in a new code causing a new door to appear and open in the wall dividing the strange man's room from ours. The man stepped out of his cell immediately, like he hadn't much thought of what he'd do next, but may as well get out of there while he had the chance. I say I went back to typing on the clear glass, and a small opening appeared before the scroll. He snatched it from the case without delicacy, rolled it up, and tucked it under his arm. Let's go, he said to the man, then, turning to us, added, New plan. We need this guy's help. Who the hell is this guy? Connor asked. Isaiah whirled around to face the man, who was moving slowly toward us. You've read from the Escaromech, haven't you? The man nodded slowly. You're Stuart Raffle, Isaiah concluded. They told us you were a vegetable, catatonic. I'm not, the man said. No, duh, Becky whispered. Isaiah took a step toward the man, who held his ground. We're leaving, Isaiah said firmly. We're taking the harbor to the rebel base on Gaina. The man slowly lifted a hand and pointed at Isaiah, as if something was only now occurring to him. You. You're Syad. I was, Isaiah nodded. Then it's true. The revolution the historian spoke of is coming. It is. The man seemed to focus, seized by some sudden urgency. Who? he asked, closing the distance between Isaiah and himself. Who did the historian gather? The Syad thinks he's recruiting warriors. They do? I asked quietly, sounding nervous. Isaiah turned to look at the seven of us. No one said anything. Connor turned around to see if he was looking at someone behind us. The man scratched his head and sighed. He leaned over to Isaiah and whispered, Is the breakfast club here really the best we could do? Becky squealed, delighted with this label. Did you hear him? She whispered excitedly, all of us shushing her. We're running now, the effort of keeping up with Isaiah without dropping my backpack or skateboard becoming increasingly difficult as we tore through every new blank corridor. How big is this place? Paul asked, panting. I'm convinced we're just doing laps, Jade wheezed. Apparently, we should have also packed sports bras, 
Emma added, though no one had a chance to get what she meant before we all crashed into each other when Isaiah came to an unexpected halt. Isaiah, I yelled, staggering backward after colliding violently with his lifted tail. As soon as I'd braced myself, Becky came crashing into my back, then Emma behind her, and on down the line until Paul collided with Barrett. Somewhere in the pileup, someone must have barreled into whoever had the boombox, which somehow came to life within one of the backpacks. What the hell, dude? I yelled at Isaiah over the music. Then I realized why we'd stopped. About 20 feet down the long corridor stood, of all people, Flynn Hardy, Bradley Press, and a human cyanid scientist. Bradley and Flynn were fixed with visitor badges, both of them clutching their very own NARS slates. The tour, the bearded prisoner man whispered, startling me when I remembered he had joined our party. Without a single word, both Flynn and Bradley lifted their little devices in the air, pointing them at us, and began tapping at them furiously. For a moment, I expected we'd be zapped with a laser or something, but instead there was just the incessant sound of a camera shutter. Should we run? I gasped. Brain drain, Paul shouted. My bladder is about to drain, Jade called out. Run, Isaiah shouted, taking off in the direction of the unexpected bystanders, the rest of us following behind with no time to consider how stupid this seemed. The caravan whizzed past the three bystanders, Flynn and Bradley keeping their NAR slates aimed at us as we passed, the snapping camera shutters sounding off. The scientist guys seemed to be stupefied. What the hell was that? Barrett yelled as we ran, the music still booming from inside someone's backpack. Were they trying to shoot us with those things? They were taking our picture, Isaiah yelled back. We have to hurry. There's not much time left. We came to another screeching halt, all of us steadying ourselves on one another to avoid a complete catastrophe. Isaiah went to work punching in another code, only this time when he finished, nothing seemed to happen. He stood there for a moment, staring at the blank white panel, then attempted the code a second time. Nothing. Uh, Isaiah? I said slowly. At the farthest end of the corridor, a group of Emi appeared, moving toward us. That's not good news, Barrett said. Can we at least turn off the damn stereo? Jade yelled. Paul shrugged. It sort of goes. The chorus rang out around us. I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. How the hell does this go? Connor shouted. What are those two assholes doing here? Barrett asked, still annoyed at having seen Bradley and Flynn. The Syad are giving a tour of the facility and a new device they'd developed to prestigious NARS users, the bearded man called out from somewhere in the group. The first guinea pigs. The Syad Emi were closer now three or four of them, stalking like menacing dinosaurs and dressed in weird-looking Tron unitards. The codes have changed, the bearded man exclaimed. They have to be completed in his name. Isaiah spun around and gave the man what seemed to me, in that moment, to be an expression of horrible panic. Whose name? Becky yelled. Ignoring her, Isaiah's eyes widened. Memra, he whispered. Turning back to the door, Isaiah began entering a new set of key codes. This time, the door opened. We scrambled into the dark room, the door closing behind us with a sound like escaping steam. 
white light flooded the room as if emanating from every surface. This room, like the others, was sleek and bare except for a large rectangular glass enclosure in the center and a small transparent pillar about three feet tall situated next to it. Isaiah moved quickly to the pillar and after entering a combination of touches was able to open it like a Pez dispenser. He crammed the scroll into the pillar's open chamber, closed it, and entered another code. There was a chime, the pillar made a brief humming sound, and the scroll seemed like it had suddenly turned to ash before being hit by a powerful gust of wind. In another moment, there was nothing left, and the pillar was empty. The bags, Isaiah said, gesturing for our luggage. Put them in the transport. One by one, the items were placed in the transport, only to be eradicated in an instant. When everything was gone, Isaiah took a deep breath and gave the group a knowing glance. Okay, he said, this is it. The seven of us all looked around at one another. Well, I said, pulling off my shirt, no one can say we're not close friends after this one. How does this work? Jade asked, stalling. What do you mean, how does it work? Isaiah asked, exasperated. You undress, you enter the harbor, you are disassembled, and then carried through the wormhole to Gaina, where you will be reassembled. Disassembled? Emma mumbled. Does it hurt? Paul asked. We can't wear any clothes at all, Jade wondered. Let me try and impress upon you the significance of our situation, Isaiah said. Every room in this facility is soundproof, so you can't hear them at the moment, but there are armed members of the Syad outside the door as we speak, working on decrypting the locking code I entered that will buy us a minute or two tops. Armed guards? Emma asked. Heavily, Isaiah nodded solemnly, and when they discover our plans on this, he said, revealing his NARS slate, I'm not sure we'll care for what follows. Do we have to get in the teleporter thing with the stranger? Emma asked, pointing to the bearded prisoner. Some of us gave her an incredulous look, and she mouthed the word, What? as if the stranger couldn't see her. Don't be racist, said Barrett. Before Emma could defend herself, Isaiah spoke up. He's not going where you're going, and none of us are going anywhere if you don't get in there now. Don't flatter yourself the bearded man, Stuart Raffle, said, before turning to face the wall and give us some privacy. Everyone seemed to be looking at me. Hey, my shirt is already off, I shrugged. I'm waiting for you guys to catch up. From where we entered the room, we heard the familiar chime that typically followed Isaiah having entered a proper code, followed immediately by a sort of sad buzz, like answering a trivia question incorrectly on a game show. They've almost cracked my code, Isaiah said unable to disguise the distress in his voice. With no one moving, my sense of purpose was clear. If I didn't lead the charge, no one would. With speedy efficiency, I removed each of my converse, stripped both feet of their socks, climbed out of my jeans, and with one hand covering my business as best as I could manage, I pulled my briefs down to my ankles and stepped out of them. I looked up, expecting to see everyone following suit. Instead, they all seemed to have paused to observe the spectacle. Dude, Jade giggled. We can all see a bet. I tried to turn around and somehow evade their leering glances, but every way I turned, I just seemed to expose myself in a new way. Aw, said Becky, cocking her head. It's okay. It's a cute butt. It really is, Emma agreed, nodding thoughtfully. Do you guys want to die? I yelled. Everyone snapped out of their butt trance and set to work frantically undressing. 
Everyone keep their eyes to themselves, Emma yelled. All right, you perverts, Barrett called back, fumbling with his belt. We all know you've just been waiting for some opportunity to sneak a peek, but mind your own damn business. Get in the harbor, Isaiah started shouting repeatedly, and we all ran in an awkward shuffle toward an opening that appeared in the middle of the glass-like chamber. Crowding inside, each of us attempting to cover ourselves, the five guys naturally shifted to one end of the rectangular harbor, the two girls on the other, like a junior high dance. In my state of agitated dread, I couldn't help but look around like a parrot, my heart hammering against my ribs. I caught a glimpse of the girls a few feet away, and Emma yelled, Hey, eyes on your own paper! Isaiah was on the other side of the harbor wall, tapping some command into the invisible keypad, when a torrent of hot water suddenly poured out from above us, followed immediately by what felt like hurricane-force winds. The transparent walls of the harbor were briefly obscured, and when the mist, or whatever it was, dissipated, I could see the door behind Isaiah sliding open. Several militarized-looking emi were stepping into the room. I pounded on the inside of the harbor, yelling to warn Isaiah. I hadn't even realized I'd left my nakedness uncovered until I heard snickering behind me and Connor's voice saying, We can totally see your wiener, dude. A sound erupted from inside my head like that horrible grating buzz when you accidentally touch the metal edges on operation. Then everything went black. You can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus. Lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on Twitter at the word virus and Instagram at spread the word virus and at the word virus.com.